we often find that one of the first questions people ask in regards to getting to know the next gen is what are they funding, right? What are the causes that are going to be important to them moving forward? And we are pleasantly surprised to find that the next gen aren't as much focusing on what to fund, but on how to fund. Hey everyone, my name is Alicia Miranda, and welcome to What Donors Want, a podcast by IG Advisors. I'm the chief executive here at IG, and we're a London-based social impact strategy consultancy on a mission to bridge the gap between fundraisers, businesses, and philanthropists. At IG, we have unique insight into both donors and fundraisers and want to help them better understand each other. And so, we bring you season two of What Donors Want, our fresh, dynamic, and slightly irreverent view into major gifts fundraising, straight from the donor's mouth. Welcome back to What Donors Want. I'm Rachel Stephenson Chef, the producer and host of the show, and very excited to share this next episode with you. Like last time, this episode is generously sponsored by the Siegel Family Foundation, and I'm joined here now by my colleague Amy White, who's going to tell you a little more about it. Thanks, Rachel. So today on the show, we're thrilled to be speaking with Shana Goldsecker and Michael Moody, co-authors of the groundbreaking book, Generation Impact, How Next-Gen Donors Are Revolutionizing Giving. Activating and engaging a next-generation portfolio of donors is a very familiar strategic ambition for most charities around the world, and reading this book is a perfect place to start. Generation Impact puts readers at the heart of today's philanthropic revolution. Based on years of research and candid insights from hundreds of next-gen donors, this book offers a rare profile of the new face of philanthropy. These are the Gen X and millennial philanthropists who are transforming and revolutionizing the philanthropic landscape. Both their approach and expectations are different, and it's critical for charities to understand and adapt to this. As next-gen donors step into their philanthropic roles, they have not only unprecedented financial resources, but also big ideas for how to leverage their financial power. They want to disrupt the traditional world of charitable giving, and they want to do so now, not after they retire to a life of philanthropic leisure. Exactly. To dive into this more, we're thrilled to be speaking with Generation Impact authors Sharna and Michael today on the show. Sharna Goldsecker is a speaker, writer, and consultant who engages multiple generations in the intersection of values and strategy to transform the ways in which they give. She is a leading expert on multi-generational and next-generation philanthropy, and as a next-gen donor herself, offers a trusted insider's perspective. She is also the executive director of 2164, the nonprofit practice she founded to serve philanthropic family enterprises. Michael Moody helps people appreciate and navigate today's complex landscape of giving and social innovation. He holds the world's first ever endowed chair for family philanthropy, the Fry Foundation Chair for Family Philanthropy at the Dorothy A. Johnson Center for Philanthropy at Grand Valley State University, and is a well-known writer, speaker, and commentator on the vital role that the nonprofit and philanthropic sector plays in our lives. Should we give him a call? Let's do it. Welcome, Sharna and Michael, to What Donors Want. We are so excited to have you on the show today. Thanks for having us. 
Yeah, thanks. So as you know, we usually start our podcasts off with something that has actually nothing to do with philanthropy or fundraising. And it's called the get to know you speed round of questions. And the whole ethos behind this is that we really believe fundraisers and organizations should get to know their donors as people, uh, you know, beyond beyond the scope of their work and really kind of start off on that humble note that we all binge watch shows and we all have similar interests. So we have a list of 10 questions that Amy and I are going to speed fire at at you. And if you just say the first thing that comes to your mind, they're very silly. You know, there's no way to answer them incorrectly. And then we can go from there. Does that sound okay? We'll do our best. <laughs> yes. I have to say I'm very nervous. <laughs> this is always the hardest part, but I promise it will be very painless and quick. Okay, here we go. So the first question is for Sharna. If you could have any superpower, what would it be? Oh, wow. I feel like time is our, my most valuable resource these days. So perhaps if I could expand or slow down time, that's a superpower I'd love to have right now. Definitely. I think we all need that. Yes. <laughs> Michael, this one's for you. What was the last show you watched? Uh, well, I have been, I, and I'm not just saying this because uh, you're asking the question from a, a UK perspective, but I've been re-watching the first two seasons of The Crown uh, because the new third season is about to come out. I'm a big fan of that show. As am I. I have also done the same thing, and I'm, <laughs> I'm very excited. Sharna, what was the last book that you read? Uh, well, for fiction or nonfiction? So oh, <laughs> however you want. So for nonfiction, I re- just reread The Price of Privilege by Madeline Levine for the 2164 Book Club. She talks about raising kids among affluence. I highly recommend it. And, um, okay, for fiction, I've been reading Cormoran Strike series by J.K. Rowling. She writes it under the pseudonym of Robert Goldbraith, but I highly recommend it. Michael, what's your favorite movie? Oh, my gosh. Favorite favorite movie? Uh... I have a bunch. I would, I guess, I would say um, sideways. Uh, you know, this American movie about going to the wine country in Santa Barbara. I just that movie just makes me feel warm and fuzzy inside. Sharna, what is the one place that you want to travel that you haven't yet had a chance to visit? Scandinavia is on my list. Ooh, I'm eager to go there in the summer, please. Definitely, <laughs> definitely summer. <laughs> Michael, what was the last great meal you ate, and where did you eat it? Oh my gosh. Uh, I am not a foodie at all, uh, I, um, but I do enjoy uh, whiskey. That is, my, that is my thing. So I'm going to say the last great meal I ate was a Glenlivet um, 15-year-old scotch. Great answer. That is a great answer. Sharna, what is your favorite season in the year? Probably fall. I grew up in the East Coast of the United States and watching the leaves change just is magical. Michael, sunrise or sunset? Uh, I am rarely awake for sunrises when the uh, when especially after daylight savings time here in the U.S. Uh, or before daylight savings time. So I'm definitely a sunset person because I'm much more active in the evening. Sharna, beach or snow? Beach. And final question to you, Michael. I will say snow on that one, by the way. We're, we're <laughs> our final question is the biggest divide of all in our office. So it's coffee or tea? Ah, it has to be coffee. Coffee, lots of it. Ah, there you go. 
Okay, you have officially survived the speed round. The scary part is over. Thank you for indulging us in that. Um, and now, of course, onto the second half of the podcast, which is all about um, your philanthropic work and research with regards to generation impact. So Sharna and Michael, our whole team now has read Generation Impact, how next-gen donors are revolutionizing giving, and we absolutely loved it. Um, and so for listeners who may not have read it yet, can you give us an overview of the book and your central thesis? Okay, so I'll, I'll take that first. So, the, so uh, and we're going to talk a lot about the the specific elements of the uh, uh, of the findings of the book. Um, and well, first of all, just thanks for for reading it and, and liking it. We always love to hear that. Um, so the so the general overview of the book is that it it pulls the curtain back on um, what are going to be the most significant group of donors in history. Uh, which is a very dramatic statement to say, um, but we feel very confident we're not the only people who are saying this, that there's a group of donors who are coming into their roles as major donors. We should clarify that what we're talking about here are those who have the capacity for high level or major giving. Um, and uh, they are going, they're just coming into their roles as major donors, and they are going to be the biggest donors for any charitable cause or organization for the next several decades. And we really don't know that much about them. And the book is designed based on many years of research to um, pull the curtain back, as I said, and see what it is that they want to change about philanthropy, what they don't want to change, what they're learning now about uh, what kind of philanthropists they're going to be, um, and, uh, and, and give us a better sense of who are these incredibly important groups of donors that we call next-gen donors, and, um, and what do they want to do with this incredible mantle that they're inheriting as major donors to all the causes that all of us care about? Absolutely. And can you let us know how you define a next-gen philanthropist? Because a lot of people define them in different ways. Yeah, so we define next-gen as, um, in the book, we talked about it as people who are currently, when they, we interviewed them in their 20s or 30s, now many of them are in their 40s. Um, at the time we were doing the research, people in their 20s and 30s we're the younger half of the Gen X generation and the older half of the millennial generation. Now, most people in their 20s and 30s are all millennials. Um, and uh, But the, again, we focused on those who are in their 20s or 30s or early 40s who are focused on or have the capacity to be able to do major giving. And that capacity can come from either inheriting, um, they, are, they are, as, as Warren Buffett calls them, the winners of the ovarian lottery. Um, mm -hmm. Those who are coming into a philanthropic family and have the capacity for major giving, uh, the privilege of major giving through that, or those who are earning um, their own uh, wealth and are beginning to figure out how they want to be engaged in giving that money away or be, be engaged in social enterprises and activities to do that work. So that's, that, that's how we defined uh, next gen uh, in the book. Fantastic. And as you, as you spoke to, and as anyone who's read the book will know, a primary source of your research, which is really thorough, is interviews and surveys with next-gen donors themselves. So can you give listeners a bit of context on how many next-gens you spoke to and, and what that process was like? Yeah, I'll take this one too as the researcher. Uh, uh, so they, we did um, 75 in-depth interviews and uh, we had a national survey. This is the, I should say that the data for this research was based on um, U.S. Uh, next generation donors, those who are based in the U.S. That doesn't mean that they only give in the U.S. or that they're only U.S. Uh, minded in how they think about their philanthropy, but they're based in the U.S. Um, so we did a national survey that we got 310 responses, very in-depth responses to the survey. Um, and we built the, that database um, and those samples of, of next generation donors through a network of partners of organizations that work with next gen 
um, and that support the field of philanthropy and, and worked with them in order to, to reach what is actually a fairly difficult to reach population of folks um, to do research on. Mm-hmm. It's so great that you've had such a, um, a widespread response to that. And I mean, the, the wealth of knowledge that there is in this book, I just, we, we can't recommend it enough to fundraisers. And so another question for you is, why was it so important for you to write this? And what has it been like since, the, what has the response been like since the book's release? Thanks so much for, for your endorsement, for reading it as a team and being enthusiastic about it. I mean, just to build on what Michael's been saying, if we're amid the, the current wealth and giving trends that we are, and if they only continue, right? It, even in, just in the United States, 1% of the population owns 43% of the wealth. So the wealth concentration is only increasing. And how do we come to know those who are going to be the biggest and most significant philanthropists? And of course, we're amid the largest wealth transfer in history. Nearly 60 trillion in the US is being transferred through families to the next gen and as you all know, about an estimated half of that will be designated to charity. So, you know, we just felt it was so important, especially as the next gen are not waiting till the sunset of their lives to retire into philanthropic leisure, but are really saying, hang on, you know, there are increasing needs and we have the opportunity to make an impact. And as Alex Soros, one of the pe- people featured in the book says, why wait? Mm-hmm. So if next gen are becoming increasingly involved in philanthropy and making a difference in the world, we just felt it was important, as Michael said, to pull back the curtain, to bring the voices of people who we have been working with um, for more than a decade to the families and advisors and nonprofits um, who desire to be their partners in that kind of change. Mm -hmm. Um, We could inform the future of climate and culture and the communities in which we live. That's fantastic. Thank you. Yeah. And I, I mean, I think the piece about reception, I have to admit, we're delighted about, um, maybe even a little surprised at the at how well it's been received. Um, you know, 14,000 copies sold um, going into uh, audiobook and hopefully paperback next year. I, the publisher told us I'm a um, novice to these numbers, but I guess anything over 10,000 these days is considered a bestseller. And I think more importantly for us, you know, we've been able to do nearly 100 speaking engagements um, around the country, and that's starting to move globally to be able to catalyze these important conversations, not just from the research we found, but the stories, right? People are saying, your book is, is actually readable. It's not just sitting on our bedside table, but um, we love reading the the Baker's Dozen, the 13 feature stories in the book and sort of hearing how the research comes to life so that we start to have the language and maybe even the courage to broach some of these conversations and endeavors in our families and in our organizations. Absolutely. That's such fantastic feedback. Um, Shana, as you were just saying, um, and as many fundraisers know listening to this, uh, we're in the midst of the largest transfer of wealth from one generation to the next in human history. And understanding how to activate and engage these next-gen donors is a strategic question at the heart of many nonprofits. In your book, you state, we need to get to know these next-gen donors, find out what they're about, and figure out how to engage them so we can know what to expect from their emerging philanthropic revolution. Can you walk us through some of the key characteristics of these next-gen donors, and how does their approach to philanthropy differ from previous generations? Sure. You know, as you're listening, I know some people like to multitask or look up websites, so feel free to check out generationimpactbook.org, and there's actually a free downloadable 
guide to a lot of the tips and things I'm about to say if people are interested in in reading more. You know, but we um we often find that one of the first questions people ask in regards to getting to know the next gen is what are they funding, right? What are the causes that are going to be important to them moving forward? And, you know, we are pleasantly surprised to find that the next gen aren't as much focusing on what to fund, but on how to fund. In mm-hmm. fact, the key um, causes and issues seem to actually be the same from one generation to the next in their families. You know, they're reporting that basic needs in education, for example, remain the top two causes that are important to them and their families. It's really, right, of course, climate change is on the rise, so forth and so on, but how they're funding is really what is most important. So, um, you know, I think about um, the next-gen donors who we interviewed, like Daniel Laurie, who said, uh, we can't keep funding the same things and doing the same things and expect different results. Mm-hmm. <laughs> we have these entrenched problems, and if we want to move the needle, we have to take some risks. We have to fund innovation, fund operating support, build partnerships with nonprofits to to make a difference in these entrenched problems and or persistent problems, as Michael likes to say. So, you know, he took a page from the corporate sector that funds R&D to build new products. Why wouldn't you fund innovation labs at, like they do at Tipping Point in the Bay Area where Daniel is based um, to help nonprofits working on poverty and homelessness and basic needs have some advancements in their strategies? Um, I also think about Mary Galetti, who helped us understand the importance of strategy to the next generation, right? Rather than, you know, just kind of funding what their peers may have said or their parents or their community. Like, they're really asking the question, what is going to make an impact here? And doing the research that it takes to understand what those key strategies are, um, funding sort of upstream at the root causes of the challenges that they're working on, um, focusing grant making. So as not to, one donor said, spread thin like peanut butter, but really to focus their approach, right? So Mary, for example, is funding the Global Press Institute rather than just handing out food or supplies to women in need. She's sort of going upstream, working with the Global Press Institute to teach journalism skills to women so that they have a livelihood and earn their own resources, which we know from research, they reinvest in their own families. Um, and of course, right, bring local local news to the world. So um, really impact, taking risk, being strategic, focusing, all of those things come to how next gen are funding. And really we encourage people to, to get to know the next gen and how they're thinking about pr- approaching the causes they care about. Absolutely. That's that's all very interesting and certainly um, what we see with our next-gen clients here at IG. And I, I love that you said it's not about what they're funding, it's about how they're funding and the quality of their approach to philanthropy. And so another question to follow up on that, you write a lot about how next-gen donors want to bring more than just their money to the table with their charitable relationships. So they want to bring skills and expertise and, and as you said, get involved with the organization's cause and strategy. And they also kind of expect this involvement. So, uh, for example, for listeners, one of the next gens that you interviewed even pointed out that the worst thing a nonprofit can do is tell a next gen donor that we'll take a look at that 
and never follow through. So that real kind of rolling up the sleeves engagement is so important to them. But, um, you know, that said, that can often be really difficult for charities to manage. And that's particularly true if the donor doesn't have expertise in the cause area. Uh, So with all of that in mind, with all that context, do you have any advice for charities when it comes to engaging donor expertise and strategy? How should they re-envision what their major donor offerings look like in this context? Yeah, so I'll take this one. I, I think the uh, you know this this may be the most um, robust and strong uh, and forceful of the findings that we have, which is the the fact that in this in this approach of changing the how of giving that the next generation feel very passionate about. The most important part of that is they want to change how they engage with those organizations with which they partner, mm-hmm. um, and uh, and that means that those organizations have to fundamentally change how they engage with their major donors and major contributors. Um, it's going to look very different than it, than it has looked in the past with the, the parents and grandparents of some of these next generation donors or those from previous generation. Um, a, a few items I'll point out about how they want to change that relationship. Um, uh, Sharna already mentioned one of them, which is that they want to develop, they, they think very much in terms of relationships. They use that language a lot. They want to develop long-term, deep, engaged relationships with organizations um, rather than take, as she said, the, the, the peanut butter approach or what we often think of in the, uh, as the sort of traditional uh, funder approach of spray, pray, and walk away. Uh, they don't like any part of that spray, pray, and walk away approach where you spread yeah. your money around and, and uh, they, want to, they do not want to walk away. They want to be deeply involved. Uh, they care less about their names on the outside of the building and more about being inside the building rolling up their sleeves, working on problems, and bringing more than just their considerable, as we, as we know, historic amounts of treasure to the causes that they care about. They want to bring what they consider to be as valuable, if not more valuable, that is their time and their talents um, to those causes. So the traditional fundraising approach that a charity might take, you know, I know it's very popular in the U.S., the, uh, the big thermometer approach, right, where you, you say, we have a campaign and you, we we're trying to get you to give money to this. And every time you give money uh, toward our big goal, you get to be aligned on the thermometer. The next generation hates that metaphor. They hate that approach because what they want, they, don't, they hate many parts about it, but it suggests that money is the most important thing they have to give. And it's, whereas these other things they believe are more valuable, and it suggests that the goal of, of being engaged with partners is simply to reach a certain amount of money rather than the impact that that's going to have um, and the way in which they're going to be able to achieve that. So uh, what this means for, for, for charities, to be blunt about it, uh, they're going to be much more high maintenance than previous major donors. That's just a fact, and we have to be aware of that and adjust to that. Um, they're going to want to take more time of the the leaders of the organization, the program staff of the organization, so that they can be working right alongside you to try to offer their tre- their 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 time and their talents um, to help you solve problems. They want you to be more transparent with them about what's going wrong, so that they can bring their talents to try to help that uh, help you solve that problem and work with you together. Um, they want to um, be engaged um, in ways that aren't just meaning that aren't just sort of token engagements. They're very savvy about how charities often with, with major donors, um, charities often give them some sort of token role, like uh, as one of them put it, choosing the colors of the, uh, the, the napkins for the annual gala event. She says, I don't have time to do that. I don't have time to stuff envelopes with at a ladies luncheon tea event. Um, I, I'm, you know, I'm a lawyer or I'm an IT expert or I'm a, 
I'm a strategic planner. I've got great skills to offer. Make use of those skills. And so those organizations and charities that are able to make use of those skills in a very a meaningful way for those donors, they're the ones who are going to be, uh, those organizations are going to be the ones that the donors commit to in this long, deep relationship that they're looking for. So I think the major thing that we suggest, and Sharna mentioned that we have a guide, specifically a best practice guide for nonprofits and fundraisers that's available on the website um, based on the research and, and building on the book. Uh, the, the number one tip, the first tip that we give is don't wait. Start building that deep relationship now um, with the next generation because if you can build, you can, you can be the place where they have those meaningful engagements and relationships, they're going to stick with you and, 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 and work on that relationship and be your biggest donors uh, ever uh, over the course of their lifetime. Yeah, it's, it's very, um, very, very interesting. And, and just a quick follow-up question on that. In this scenario, because of course it's fabulous when you have next-gen donors that do have you know, significant potential to give cash, but also want to bring their expertise and their connections and their talents, as you said. And it's great when those talents are really useful and relevant, but we do have sometimes clients who say, you know, this donor really wants to bring their strategic brain to the table, but they know nothing about our cause area. And honestly, it's just more resource for us to manage and it's not actually that useful to our mission-related work, um, which you know, it, it might be an exception to a rule, but um, what would you say to a charity that's having to manage, you know, a, a next gen donor that wants to bring more than money, but where that doesn't act, isn't actually having the most value for the, the organization? Well, I was just thinking about, we interviewed, um, a nonprofit executive recently who said to me, he was dealing with, um, a wealth creator who had a lot of entrepreneurial expertise and wanted to contribute his wisdom to the organization in addition to his resources. Um, and he didn't want to serve on a board, or I should say he didn't want to sit on a board. He wanted to serve the, the organization and the cause. And so they came up with this idea that he would attend the executive leadership team's strategy sessions four times a year and listen and come to learn about the organization and offer his entrepreneurial ideas um, in the context of how they were trying to lead the organization, which, by the way, is a global humanitarian organization. Mm-hmm. So I think that there are oftentimes we think about the board, let's say, um, well, as Michael said, you know, the gala on one hand, <laughs> right, picking napkins uh, for the gala, or the board as the only two nonprofit engagement mechanisms. And I think that what we learn in this study, because the next gen want to learn, want to contribute their time and their talents, there are so many creative ways to engage people in the life of the organization. So there's a way to say, I don't think this is going to fit into our scope, but I'd love to invite you in to learn what we're doing and see if this is a way you can lend your expertise to what we're doing. Absolutely. Thank you for sharing that. That's a really helpful tip. Yeah. That's just, yeah, go for it. I would just add that, that, um, you know, this is, this is where the high maintenance comes in, uh, which is, which sounds kind of pejorative, but it, but it's, uh, it's, it's actually can have incredibly positive outcomes. Um, if it's done in the right way. And, and so I think you mentioned before the, the person, um, uh, her name's Jenna Siegel, uh, who says that in the book, that um, uh, in, her, in her profile where she writes that uh, the worst thing a nonprofit can do is, is have me come to them because I'm going to come to them with new ideas. Uh, and then when I come to them with a new idea, they say, oh, that's interesting. We'll take a look at it. And then she says, that's just sort of donor speak for no. They don't want to say no, so they just say, we'll take a look at it. And then they never follow up. Um, that doesn't mean that uh, every idea or every 
you know, possible talent that a next generation donor wants and is eager to bring to your organization has to work for your organization. Um, what they want is to be taken seriously in the offer and then to have a candid conversation about whether it does make sense to pursue that new idea or not, or whether it does make sense for them to bring that particular talent um, in this organization and to, and to work out the plan as a real close partner with the organization about just how they can be helpful. Um, you know, it doesn't mean that every idea they have is going to be a good one, but they want to be seen as having ideas and be, having talents to bring and having those taken seriously by the organization. Um, and they believe in a relationship that's an honest, candid relationship that you would eventually be able to work out a way that it's going to be really productive and beneficial for both sides. Mm. Shana, um, we were wondering, as a next-gen donor yourself, do you have any standout examples from your experience or perhaps an anecdote from your research of when a charity has done this incredibly well and has really managed to engage well with uh, next-gens that they're working with? And, and can you tell us a bit about that? Sure. I mean, one that comes to mind as really hitting it out of the ballpark is do something.org. Um, under Nancy Lublin's leadership and now Aria Fingers, you know, it's become one of the largest millennial volunteer organizations and probably now with Gen Z as well. They kind of broke this mold of having to have one annual campaign and sort of mark the progress with the thermometer, as Michael talked about earlier, to having many, you know, sometimes as many as 12, one every month, campaigns a year. And they really turn the notion on the head of saying, actually, let's let our audience tell us what impact campaigns they want to work on. So they can post sort of a photo and an idea and encourage peers to join them. And so they've, you know, uh, brought in they say half of America's homeless youth has genes from the campaign that a millennial came up with to collect, you know, blue jeans for teens and homeless shelters, um, have cleaned up, you know, close to 4 million cigarette butts off the streets and been the largest distributor of feminine products in homeless shelters. Um, and, you know, that's the impact on the population they're serving. And then think about the impact of all the contributors that they're galvanizing through their work to sort of catalyze this next generation of of um, civic action and, and volunteerism and social change. And I, I guess for me, the um, significance of volunteering young was something that was underscored through our research. It turns out that 75% of the people who we interviewed who see themselves as major donors at, at a young age began to volunteer before the age of 15. Wow. Right, 90% of them before the age of 21. and um, 50% started to give, to make contributions before the age of 21. Thank you for sharing that, Sharna. That's, um, those volunteering facts are very, very interesting. And I think it's, uh, it's also very important for charities to keep in mind because a lot of next-gen programs that we see emerging have to do with uh, engaging younger donors, but also providing them with volunteer experiences and, and kind of full family experiences. So it's very cool to see that it works. And uh, going off of what you said, you know, speaking of impact, so nearly all of the, the 300 major donors in their 20s and 30s that you surveyed ranked impact among their top three reasons for giving. 
And this passion came out of uh, came out even stronger in the 75 in-depth interviews that you did. So can you tell us a little more about this? Because impact is, it's a very broad term. And, you know, what new tools and strategies for change and impact have you found excite next gens the most? Yeah, I think the, um, we call the book Generation Impact um, because uh, this emphasis and what we call in the book an obsession really with impact is uh, maybe the most singular defining feature of the next generation of donors that we talked to. Um, they really were hyper-focused on having greater impact um, than previous generations of donors or any other donors that they were aware of were, were able to have. That doesn't mean that they don't respect um, and, and are proud of what maybe their own families have done philanthropically or respect what previous generations have been able to do philanthropically, but they believe that philanthropy can be um, much more impactful. It can make a much bigger difference um, than it's made in the past. And they're willing to change, uh, as we use the word revolutionize philanthropy, revolutionize whatever elements of the philanthropic space that are, and practice that are necessary in order to achieve that impact. Um, so they're looking for, we've already talked about how they're willing to take risks. They're willing to try new things. They're eager to try new things. Um, they want to, as, as we heard Daniel Lurie has said, um, they want to uh, not just keep doing the same things over and over again and expect a different outcome. They want to try to build a better mousetrap or create a new way of, of achieving change on some cause like education or healthcare or climate change or whatever they're, they're passionate about. Um, that doesn't mean that that impact looks the same to all of them, which we can talk about, um, but they, they all know that they want to see more impact. Some of the things that they want to try um, that, that they're excite, most excited about, we found, for achieving that impact, again, they go to strategy changes and, and new, new idea changes. So the things like using um, tools like political giving, giving to 501c4s in the United States, that category for more political organizations instead of more traditional charities, um, doing crowdfunding, doing anything where they can be involved with peer-based giving, collaboratives that where they're leveraging and learning with their peers. They're very excited about the possibilities of those. And the one maybe that's most uh, significant is their interest in impact investing and using all of their assets. As we know, their tremendous amount of of assets that they have as a generation, um, using all of those assets for good. They don't, they don't think in the same siloed ways as maybe previous generations did, which is this pot of money is my philanthropic money, and it's completely separate from this pot of money, which is my, uh, my consumer and live my life money, and here and I have another pot of money, which is my investment money. For them, all of those pots of assets should be doing good. They should all be aligned with their charitable values. And they're deeply looking for ways to, to, uh, to, to achieve that alignment. So impact investing is, um, is really a passion for the, many of them in the next generation. We feature a number of them in the book who are very passionate about impact investing. And that's true both with their personal assets and with the endowed assets of a family vehicle that they might be involved in. Um, there's great examples in the book about that. Absolutely. Um, impact investing is certainly something that we're seeing on the rise here at IG as well. Do you have any advice for charities looking to engage uh, NextGens in this particular context? So as Michael said, we see NextGen donors thinking about all of their assets to make change with. Um, so I think about Justin Rockefeller, who is featured in the book and talks about serving on the, the board and the investment committee of the Rockefeller Brothers Fund. And um, with the leadership of his sister Valerie and the other members of the investment committee, really looked at the concept of the foundation was 
funding 5% payout to causes such as climate change and with the 95% of the assets um, investing in fossil fuels and in other um, right. areas where the wealth was created. And so, you know, how do they um, really make the choice, which um, I believe it was announced in 2014 in the New York Times, right, to divest from mm-hmm. fossil fuels over time, you know, in a responsible way, but um, to bring their values and align their their asset allocation um, just as they would on their grant making side. So, you know, we often encourage people to start to talk to the next gen about their values first. I think nonprofit professionals like many of us are so eager to say, you know, here's what we're doing, here's what our mission is, here's what our program areas, our causes, the impact we want to make in the world. Um, but when we start with causes, I think we sometimes um, go into sell mode, right? And we forget to pause and look at the person behind the cause we're selling. So, you know, we encourage people to kind of slow down and say to the next gen, who are you and what do you value and what do you care about in the world? You know, particularly as we found that with values, um, many of the next gen say to us, they want to align their decision-making with their values. Yet, you know, the kind of job they have, the kind of organization with which they volunteer, um, how they give their money, how they invest their assets. And so um, we think it behooves uh, charities to start there, right? To say, what do you value in the world? What do you care about? How did you come to have those values? How do you hope to deploy them? Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's, it's, I mean, it's certainly, it's, it's the winner's take all world, right? It's, I mean, we see companies having those same kinds of conversations about making sure that their, their wealth creation is aligned with their philanthropic values. I think that's a really cool way to think about it, to start off on that values note. Can I, can I jump in and, and say, just on this, uh, just in terms of advice for charities and, and how they would engage with these donors around who are, who are obsessed with impact? I just think it's really important for us to to say that they they want to see impact, um, whatever that impact is defined by the organization, and um, and and in some cases, the and the advice we give to to organizations is to talk to the donors, especially these major donors, about what you think of and what you co-define together as the impact that you're seeking, um, and that and uh, and by do in that process of engaging with them about. Here's the impact that we really both together want to achieve. Um, you're able to help them see this impact uh, and to and remain committed to the organization. The problem is, of course, that some organizations are much easier to, to they can show that impact in a much easier way. When you've got children in a room that are receiving education because the donor was able to give the money for that program, is a much easier impact to see than if you're working on climate change, say these long-term impacts that are very hard to see, or um, or a prevention organization where it's very hard to see that uh, something that you that you led to uh, you know you you contributed so that something didn't happen. So there are a lot of organizations that are going to struggle in this um, impact focused world. Um, but again, what we recommend to them is focus on talking to donors about what impact they want to see. That impact may very well be an internal or organizational impact. You know, the creation of a new program or the hiring of new staff who are working. Uh, new scientists who are working on climate change or whatever that might be, but define impact together with your donors as a way of helping them see that impact. And that's what's really going to get them to stay, stick with you and build that long-term relationship. 
I love that. I love that co-creation aspect that you're speaking of because it is it is very hard for charities, especially those, as you said, who are focused on movement building or on, you know, systemic climate change. How do you measure that? How do you wrap it into a nice, neat annual report? It's it's a very different ball game, but it is a really important communications exercise for charities to really look at themselves in the mirror and figure out how to build you know, tangible short-term milestones into their larger movement-focused work to bring donors on that journey. So, you know, there's all this, this amazing research that you've done. We, we know that these next gens are these, you know, highly strategic, engaged donors with an appetite for risk and with an appetite for real genuine impact. Um, and many, you know, every client we have certainly is having this question of how do we engage the next gen at the heart of their strategic discussions? They, they know they have to start shifting their approaches, but at the same time, many charities, and especially those that are smaller, they don't even know where to begin. And they often don't have the time or the headspace to think about a next-gen strategy when their full day and you know time is taken up with cultivating and stewarding their current donor portfolio. So our question for you is to these charities, the ones that don't know where to begin, that don't have a lot of time or extra staff resource, what advice would you give a nonprofit in this position? Where should they start? Well, first off, I have so much compassion for people who are working in the nonprofit sector today and in particular in fundraising roles to sort of be the engine that we all need to to give us the resources to do the work in the world. So thank you to those of you who are listening for the work you're doing. You know, I, I... I also, you know, understand that we used to maybe have one or two generations of donors who we stewarded, and now we have five generations above the age of 21 uh, in America, probably in the UK and many countries around the world now, given sort of healthcare and medicine and access to technologies that are enabling lifespans to increase, um, certainly in these affluent communities in which we're talking about. And so, you know, it's a lot to juggle. I guess what what Michael and I want to say is, um, how do you think about next gen not as children, but as the adults that they are, right? So we see a lot of times, we heard a lot of times in our research that next gen would say, I was just seen as, you know, so-and-so's daughter, granddaughter, son, grandson, not even seen as the adult I was who was running my own company or had a graduate degree or had my own family, you know? And so there's some simple things just like mapping who the children are, developing independent relationships. I was at a nonprofit this morning that admitted their technology system only had cataloged the patriarchs who had sent the checks into their organization. They didn't even yet know the significant others and the children or the foundations that kind of came in with the family system. So for many, just starting out by mapping who those next gen are, and then secondly, treating them like the adults that they are, um, having straightforward conversations, you know, and, and, um, and perhaps not starting by seeing them as an ATM, as one donor said to us, you know, I don't, I, I can see the dollar signs in their eyes as they approach, right? I just I want to start building a relationship. I'm young. I, I could be here quite a long time as their donor if they saw me as sort of a marathon runner, right? This is not a sprint. Um, and actually the, the, uh, the, more appropriate metaphor is really we heard people say this isn't a baton passing you're not dealing with the current generation of donors who will pass the baton to us as people are staying engaged in philanthropy longer we see this as a multi-generational team right the elders who've been supporting your organization for a long time bring their their wisdom and experience but the next generation may also bring their ideas their new networks their know-how the way the world works these days could you see us as 
you know, collaborating and, and working as a team. So I don't know if that those feel concrete enough to you, but I'm often struck by just this mindset shift of understanding we have multiple generations, knowing who they are, seeing them as adults, building relationships, and thinking about how they can complement one another to affect change for the organization. Absolutely. Yeah, we love that. That's a great way to put it. And I think, you know, that this question is often thought as tomorrow's problem. You know, this is the next generation. We don't think of it as the current generation. Uh, but really, it's kind of yesterday's problem for, for charities and nonprofits, because these people, as you said, they are adults now, and they're going to be very multi-generational givers themselves. So I, I love that metaphor or analogy of, of a team rather than the baton passing, because it's definitely something that charities need to take very seriously in the, in the present moment. Social entrepreneurs, you know, didn't want to wait either. We had many Gen Xers who said, you know, rather than wait to step into leadership roles of the nonprofits and NGOs that we want to lead, you know, we're going to start to create our own to address the causes that are pressing in the world. So whether it's um, Teach for America or Donors Choose or Dress for Success or Do Something we talked about earlier, right? Those were all um, endeavors of Gen Xers who said, there are problems out there that we need to start to tackle now. And so I think similarly to your point, next-gen donors are saying, you know, why wait 20, 40 years for nonprofits to to notice I'm here? I'm going to go out and start to get involved now. Um, and we have the opportunity to partner with them. Mm. This has been so insightful. Thank you so much, Shauna and Michael. Um, just to wrap up, what's the one key thing you want listeners to take away from this conversation? Well, I'll go first. Uh, first of all, thanks for, for having us and for, for having such great things to say about the book and for, for encouraging others to, to read it. We really do think it's very valuable, um, for, uh, the, particularly for the group uh, of fundraisers and nonprofits that um, have, are facing this incredibly historically important challenge. Um, and I guess to them, I would say, uh, most importantly, don't wait. Start building those relationships right now. I mentioned that already today. Um, and, uh, and, and, and I would also say if I can, if I can add a second one, uh, that is find a way to, to, to bring the next generation in, um, in meaningful talent-based ways, you know, create a task force, uh, where they can, um, bring their skills and work with their peers to solve a problem. That's a, a problem, a real problem that has real impact on the charity. Don't just create a junior board or a token board seat on, uh, you know, for the next gen, for the millennial that you know you have to have a millennial on your board. Um, give them a real role to play, and that's that's the best way to build that relationship. Oh, narrowing down to one last thing to say is always a little tough. This is where my superpower of expanding time would help right now. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> if only. Yeah. I mean, I guess the thing that I, I actually want to say is that we, we all have next gen in our own lives, be it our children, our grandchildren, our nieces, nephews, people we mentor. And so to remember with the same love and compassion we have for those family members of ours, um, these are also other people's next-gen children, grandchildren, nieces, nephews, who are doing their best to develop their way in the world, to find purpose, to contribute, to make an impact. Um, and just as we would want people to you know, support our next gen. How can we support these next gen? Um, partner with them, collaborate. You know, see them as the the future for for our communities as well. So, um, thanks for being interested in this, and uh, I look forward to hearing about all the great work that you all are doing. 
Thank you both so much for your time and for being so thoughtful and generous with your advice today on the show for listeners. I know this is going to be definitely a very impactful episode. Um, this is this is the topic, um, pun intended. Uh, you know, this this is the topic du jour, and, and your research that you've done on this is definitely at the cutting edge of it. So again, for listeners, do check out their book, um, Generation Impact. It's definitely the one to read, and it's it's not just the future; it's the present moment. So thank you so much, Sharna and Michael, uh, for your time for everything, and we look forward to connecting again soon. Thank you for having us. It's terrific. Thank you all. I look forward to collaborating again. <laughs> Thanks for listening to another episode of What Donors Want. And a huge thank you to Sharna and Michael for their generous time and advice. Definitely be sure to check out their book, Generation Impact, How Next-Gen Donors Are Revolutionizing Giving. I absolutely loved it, and it's an amazing resource for any fundraiser looking to learn more. In fact, if you want to download any of their practical guides for fundraising, be sure to check out their website, 2164.net forward slash generation dash impact. And if you want to learn more about IG or a podcast, you can always find us online at impactandgrowth.com. Say hello to us on Twitter. Our handle is at IG underscore advisors or come grab a coffee with us in London. Stay tuned for more episodes coming your way. And a huge thank you again to our official sponsor, the Siegel Family Foundation. Thanks again for listening. See you soon.